This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we look at the federal response to the shutdown of the economy in the wake of the coronavirus, Spending the Hour, with Robert Brenner, who's just published Escalating Plunder in New Left Review 123. The punchline is that the COVID-19 bailout, or CARES Act, not only escalates plunder, it is predation on steroids in a stalled economy in worsening decline. This plunder, on behalf of the biggest corporations, financial and non-financial, does not help the economy and does too little for the population. To explain, Robert Brenner joins us for the hour when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Robert Brenner back with us. He's a professor of history at UCLA. He's the author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, The Brenner Debates, uh, Merchants and Revolution. He's also the executive producer of this program. Today, we're going to get his analysis of the CARES Act bailout by the bipartisan establishment, an intervention and a rescue that benefits the top 1%, further cement the rigged economy for their own benefit in the face of plunging production, employment, and profit. So we're going to get Robert Brenner's analysis. So as we are in the midst of uh, one of the worst crises ever, with the stock market falling the fastest and farthest in history, the credit markets uh, have frozen up, and the unemployment rate, output, and profits have fallen faster and farther than ever before. Robert Brenner's new article in New Left Review is appropriately called Escalating Plunder, and it shows how the government, the Federal Reserve, and the two political parties responded to a collapsing economy with a bailout overall for the corporations. He's going to explain that and put it into context for us. So, Robert Brenner, welcome back to Jacobin Radio. Where did this bailout come from and how did it happen? Thanks very much, Susie. It's great to be here. I thought you began quite appropriately with the depths of the crisis, essentially the crisis happening in a very practically vertical fashion, all measurable elements of the economy absolutely plunging. And it was in this situation that the government comes to try to counter. And where the initial attempt occurred was with the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve had the idea, it it makes sense until the depths of the crisis, people realized just how bad things were. The Fed's idea was to do a whole series of things that would make it profitable for the lenders, aka the financial sector, to lend. How could it make the financial sector want to lend to the non-financial corporations and get the economy going again? How could they be made to make big profits on their lending uh, and make that happen? Well, as it turned out, nothing the Fed could do could make the financial sector 
lend to the non-financial sector. They said, uh, not for us. Uh, you can offer us the world, but we're not going to hand over anything to the non-financial corporations. They're not going to be able to pay us back. And we're sitting this one out. Thank you. So the Fed, the only way the Fed could actually do anything here was to do it itself. And that was the beginning of the shift in which the Fed made this historic step to lend to the non-financial corporations. Financial sector wouldn't do it. The Fed's going to do it. And as it happened, previous Fed chairs, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen, uh, kind of a few days before had said, no doubt, having talked to the new Fed chair, said, look, you've got to do this, and called upon him to do it. I should just say for our listeners, the Fed previously had never lent, pretty much never lent uh, beyond the to the treasuries and government-sponsored enterprises, which are effectively close to the same status as treasuries. That is, their Fed could lend to the government, not really much more. But as the situation was serious, the Fed shifted, leaped into lending to the non-financial corporations and announced that on the 23rd of March, 2020, a day that will live in, I think, probably infamy. Wow. And so you've just said that Ben Bernanke called on the Fed to do this, to rescue the non-financial corporations. And of course, Bernanke was the Fed chair, as you've just also said, at the time of the great financial crisis. So lending his expertise from a previous experience in one that's not that different from that one, except for COVID, which is, of course, a giant difference. So what's the relationship between that bailout run by the Fed and today's? It's actually exceedingly close because, in a way, or in fact, the bailout that took place of the financial sector in 2008, 2009, came to form the model for the bailout that is going on today. What happened in 2008-9 under Bernanke's stewardship was that the Fed made this great leap away from the safe assets of the Treasury and the GSEs to lend outright to different parts of the financial sector. Now, there had never been, this had not happened in this sort of way before, and it was quite questionable what basis the Fed could do this. Bernanke and friends, you know, pulled out this old part of the 1932 Federal Reserve Act, what became the famous Section 13.3, to do it. And they used it to legitimize lending to basically, above all, frankly, to the most well-connected, the people, the, the institutions they thought most deserving, which just so happened to be the institutions that they were most connected to, which were not surprisingly the leading banks and several other big financial institutions. People probably remember what happened on that score. AIG, Bear Stearns, Citigroup, Bank of America. This, These are the sort of institutions that got bailed out. The justification was completely bogus. It was called too big to fail, invented for the moment, but it, it worked just fine. But the really sort of ugly part of it was that 
not only was the bailout of the financial sector so major, and it was actually international, but systematically the the borrowers from the financial institutions who the financial institutions had been levied to were systematically excluded from the benefits of that. So you have this model where if you're well-connected and big, you get bailed out. If you're not, you get screwed. And that's uh, pretty much what happened this time. They had actually, just to dot the I's, cross the T's, in 29, the Obama administration with Bernanke and others explicitly rejected the advice of several quite uh, middle of the road or conservative advisors who said, look, you, you should also bail out the uh, mortgage holders, the house lenders, as had been done in the 30s. That way you'll limit the crisis and you'll keep those people whole and it will also have a, a very positive political effect. Obama and friends rejected that. I say Obama, he was at the heart of this rejection. And what we ended up with was a model of help the bigs, do not waste your time on the uh, rest of the people who are involved. I should mention one book, actually, one person. That would be, it's to the listeners a great place to start. And it gives you an idea of what's going on. It's a book by the Inspector General for the TARP or Troubled Asset Relief Program of that the bailout of that period. It's by uh, Neil Borowski, who is who was the Special Inspector, and he, the title of his book sort of says it all: How Washington Abandoned Main Street While Rescuing Wall Street. Chapter one is titled Fraud One Hundred One. So that would be an excellent intro to the current financial crisis as well as that one. And of course, you know, it isn't just Borofsky, but we have Robert Reich calling it the rigged economy and you have as well. So I think what we need to understand here is what's happened this time and what makes it different. So what did the Fed and the government in general do to make the bailout of the non-financial corporations uh, happen? As you said, they didn't want to do that. And, you know, and I remember all those early press conferences with Mnuchin saying, we're not going to let them do stock buybacks, blah, blah, blah. We're going to make sure that it gets in the right hands. So Robert Brenner, what happened? Well, just to begin with, from March 23rd, and that announcement, the Fed actually uh, took charge of this bailout. Of course, it had the close collaboration of the Treasury with our good friend uh, Stephen Mnuchin, you know, uh, another of the heroes. And the two of them, but uh, led by, I, I think really led now by the Fed, went about systematically paving the way for this huge bailout of the non-financial corporate sector. Congress uh, was enlisted to pass a corporate bailout piece of the what came to be called the CARES Act. So there was a section of the CARES Act specifically for the non-financial corporations, huge corporations. If you wanted to qualify, you had to have 10,000 employees. You had to have a turnover of $2.5 billion a year. So these are the people they wanted to rescue. There was a small section of that $500 billion that was directed to a particular set 
of corporations. They were the cargo airlines and Boeing. <laughs> Boeing was a category of itself. So and that was $46 billion. Doing so, the arithmetic, subtract that 46 from the 500, and you have $454 billion. And what the Fed said, listen, we're going to, what you need to do is attribute that for the minute to the Treasury, but then have the Treasury credit it to the Fed. If you'll do that, we will have the initial backstop, the initial loan that will enable us to use central bank leverage to vastly multiply the amount of credit that will be available to the corporations. That $454 billion is a kind of a cushion, which means that that much money is available to the Fed for losses. People don't pay their money back before the Fed itself has to take losses. So what we ended up was that $454 billion multiplied by a factor of 10, which is the leverage at the central bank's disposal. So we have no less than $4,540,000,000 at the disposal of the Fed to be handed out to the non-financial corporations. That's about, in itself, about 20% of GDP. And that's a lot of money for the corporations. How is that gigantic allocation supposed to affect the economy, which is what we really are talking about, given that we've never been in a situation like this pandemic in which the economy is essentially shut down. So how does this revive the economy and presumably improve the prospects and the condition of the population? Funny you should mention that, since uh, it was mentioned a little bit at the very beginning, but bit by bit, that uh, little aspect of making the economy work better so that people could live, uh, survive faded into the woodwork. It had been the case that with the financial sector bailout of 2008-9, there had even in established, some establishment quarters, I should say, had been some dissatisfaction about the way this had looked, the too big to fail aspect, the failure to support any other pieces of the economy, and the appearance of, you know, flat-out favoritism. So it was expected that with this new bailout, sure, the big guys were going to be the ones bailed out, but there were going to be, it was thought, conditions that would make sure at least that the money was not used, so to speak, corruptly, meaning for the the individual aggrandizement of the shareholders and especially the top managers, and that it would go to help the economy work better and people benefit. So that was the assumption. And there was, if you go back and read the papers of that, of that moment, you can see that there was all kinds of talk about negotiations for those decent conditions. And if you read the initial press coverage, it says, wow, this is going to be good this is almost like a little bit moving toward the New Deal. The state is now moving in to make sure the economy will work better and people will be better off. But that was the last time anything like that appeared. Because once people looked at the act, they saw much different. Despite the language of the CARES Act, 
section on the non-financial corporations. And despite the assurances from the Democratic Party leadership that everything would be okay in these respects, and this is the, in a way, the central point, I would say, of this discussion. The corporate bailout was literally unconditional. Mm -hmm. There were no conditions on the corporations for getting the spectacular amount Despite of what money. they said, obviously. What? Despite what they said, they were trying to assure the public that it wouldn't happen like last time. Exactly. And you read, you know, people who write, uh, you know, leading writers, say, for the Wall Street Journal, you have summaries of this CARES Act from the beginning, and they're saying, look, this is not going to be like 2008-9. And they had presumably had a chance to read a little of it. Maybe they had only discussed it. But the bottom line was that there were no restrictions on the giant corporation recipients, what they could do with the money, and no restrictions on what they could do themselves in terms of their own economic policy. So in particular, this is again a tip-off because it was explicitly discussed. And here's what happened. It turned out very explicitly that these corporations would be allowed with this money that they're being got, they can use it to do share buy buybacks. They can use it to do dividends. They could use it to raise executive salaries. All of this very explicit, the reason was explicit, and I'll probably keep coming back again and again to this. The reason it was explicit is because it was understood that this is what the corporations and their, you know, their beneficiaries would likely or could possibly do with the money since that's what they've been doing with it for the previous uh, years. At the same time, uh, despite what people had thought was going to happen, there was no limitation on, say, laying people off no limitation on using the money, say, for investment. So no restrictions. And just to top it off, I'll try to be brief about this, but it's, it's kind of, again, a tip-off, that within the CARES Act itself, and then again and again subsequently, the Federal Reserve, who was administering this bailout, was relieved from the responsibility of letting it be known what was going on in the proceedings that would uh, go on to pick borrowers and so forth. Fed Chair Bernanke had tried to keep everything secret in the previous bailout and almost succeeded by going to court again and again, but ultimately lost and he, he was exposed what, what he had been doing, the gigantic amounts of money that had been uh, lent out by the Fed with no oversight. This time, however, the Fed managed to be explicitly uh, relieved from having to have that. And so the Freedom of Information Act, which normally would cover this, was suspended explicitly, and then no one has to know what the Fed is doing. The bottom line is that the bailout of the corporations was as corrupt as a previous one, and without conditions, I'm going to be editorializing here, I'm sure uh, your listener, Susie, will be appalled at my political position here. What is going on is there has to be nothing has to be done to help the economy 
nothing has to be done to help the citizenry or the population at a time where the economy is as bad as it's been and when the people are as vulnerable as they've ever been. And yet this goes on as if they weren't there. So, Robert Brenner, we're actually going over what was entailed in this CARES Act. And I guess you could say this was one time that they could celebrate the bipartisan nature of what they did rather quickly. So maybe you should go in here to what the role of the Democratic Party was in all of that. What was their position? What was their strategy? And what were their goals? This turned out to be not very difficult to discern, although unquestionably the Democratic Party leadership and indeed the membership as a whole were not terribly thrilled in the end. First and foremost, the Democrats allowed the Senate to take the lead in framing the act. There, of course, the Republicans have a majority. There, of course, uh, you're going to get a certain bent, so to speak, on this bailout. The way it worked out, Senate Minority Leader Schumer worked closely with Stephen Nuchin, the Treasury Secretary, to work out the details of that part of the CARES Act. And indeed, the whole of the CARES Act that came out of the Senate and went to the House. That was where it started. It then went to the House, and there it was shepherded by Nancy Pelosi and her lieutenant, Richard Neal, who is the head of the uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And the result was that in both the Senate and the House, the bill became law with virtually zero opposition. The main clear opponent, one person, not surprisingly AOC, she had some verbal support from Elizabeth Warren in particular, also Bernie Sanders, but they were kind of quiet or muted, I would say, the way they put their opposition. So the thing went through without any serious Democratic opposition. The Democrats clearly were making it clear to their donors that this was a top priority. And it seems to have been their strategy to let it go through and let the Senate have the credit for it. And then once it had gone through, the headlines had credited, you know, the Republicans with getting this big uh, win for the corporations. And on that basis, they hoped that they could get some things for their constituency once the big chore of supporting the donors had been successfully accomplished, which it uh, surely was. So the problem, however, was that as they found out again and again, and it should have been obvious and was obvious to many observers, if you're going to let the Senate lead, you're going to be in the position of being on your heels by the time you have to deal with the bill coming out of it. The better way to proceed would be to take the lead, push your own bill through the House, and let the Senate try to amend that or uh, revise that. That did not happen, and uh, the result was what we saw. It wasn't totally terrible in that there were some good pieces of the act that will help people or have helped people big time. There are the cash payments to individuals and families. I think it's 
dollars uh, per person. Uh, it was about uh, six hundred three billion for that. There was about two hundred sixty billion for topping off unemployment benefits, which was a you know a point of contention for them. But it meant that they got six hundred dollars a week in addition to their regular unemployment. And of course, we saw Republicans saying, "No, no, 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 that's way too much." <laughs> right. So that was a victory, I think. Bernie Sanders was one of the architects there. And there was about $50 billion for uh, loans like the students and others. And then there was the whole paycheck protection program, which is much more checkered, much more difficult, and ended up being taken advantage by the big corporations and having small people having a hell of a time. And I could go into the details of this. But the bottom line was that by the time that went into effect, the small business portion of the act, which had the paycheck protection element to it, many, many people were already unemployed. So what might have been a situation if it had been better administered or more sensitively administered to allow small businesses to get the money, this would have allowed them to hold on to their employees much better, as happened infinitely better, more or less, in places like Denmark or Norway. It didn't happen much that way. And so by the end, the act was clearly so deficient that on the moment of its passage, both Schumer and Pelosi said, oh, we're going to have a second one real quick. Don't worry. Don't worry. This is not the end. We're going to have a second CARES Act that's going to make up for the difference. But it never has happened. And what that has meant is that things like spending for support of state budgets have been left. They have are obviously in terrible financial shape because collapse of tax free revenues and at the same time their inability to go and do deficit spending. Failure to do anything about food. People are starving. Long mm. lines. Mile long lines. Failure Line, to do lines for food banks, one should say. That's when, charity. When we know that well before the crisis It was a terrible catastrophe already. Above all, what's really most shameful in a certain way, nothing was done really about health care. And what that meant was that in this country where so much of health insurance is tied to jobs and millions of people are now unemployed, they have lost their insurance and are completely at the will of their uh, relatives, whatever they can do. And so you have a situation in which nothing's been done about these things. No substitute has passed. And as we know, the, quote, good provisions of the CARES Act are about to run out uh, or will run out in July at some point, And then the rubber will really hit the road. Just to underscore what you just said, Robert Brenner, we've seen now the president has asked the Supreme Court to just throw out the Affordable Cares Act at a time when you have escalating death, mass death, over 127,000 or maybe even 130,000 at this point. We've never seen anything like it. And even though they said they won't charge you for COVID coverage, you've well outlined, you know, what happens when people lose their health insurance right in the middle of this pandemic. And then there's also the whole issue of homelessness, you know, and while they're saying that many states and cities have put a moratorium on evictions, they haven't forgiven rents yet. And that's also been an organizing point. But 
as you say in your article, the corporate bailout section of the CARES Act was just the tip of the iceberg. The payoffs that the corporations actually secured were assured in its implementation. Can you explain that? Yeah. Essentially, as I said at the start, the big problem that the Fed faced was that although it had taken a series of steps to make it ever more apparently profitable for the financial institutions to lend profitably to the non-financial institutions, the financial institutions just said, no, this is way, way too risky for us. We are not going to be involved. And what this meant was that the Fed had to go in and do it itself, so to speak. It had to effectively commit to making sure that the lending took place to the non-financial corporations on the Fed's own initiative. Now, the way it did this was to set up a series of vehicles for various categories of corporate debt, investment grade, in the middle, on the way, losing investment grade and becoming junk, and then junk bonds, shockingly. So essentially what the Fed did was guarantee or say it was going to back up the whole, virtually without any important exception, the whole of the corporate bond market. It meant that, as people know, lending today is much less lender to borrower than taking place through the markets, so-called bond market. And so what the Fed was doing was saying, by our intervention, we're going to keep up the value of the bonds. If necessary, uh, we will buy them. We will do whatever is necessary so they will not lose their value. But what happened next was that the lenders, just as was supposed to have happened, as the Fed knew what would happen, when the Fed said, look, we're backing up the bond market, now everything changed. Because we remember, the bond market had frozen up because lenders of all sorts, all the big financial institutions, those are the big lenders, they were not going to do anything because of the risk. Now the risk is overcome, meaning the profits of buying bonds now are pretty assured because the Fed is going to take care of the risk. And suddenly, lo and behold, even before the Fed moved to buy a single bond all across the bond market, the situation is transformed because people see the Fed backing it up, risk declines. Because risk declines, interest rates decline. Because interest rates decline, a record amount of corporate borrowing takes place. By the same token, a record amount of lending takes place by the now reassured financial lenders. And you have an extraordinary turnaround Whereas the bond market had been seizing up, interest rates going to the clouds, you have the opposite. Interest rates falling, borrowing taking place at uh, record speed. And because that is taking place, 
people are realizing, ah, for the time being at least, the corporate sector is looking pretty good. What would that mean, per chance, for the stock market? Of course, I say of course, I think there were a number of skeptics. I'm sure I would have been a skeptic. I could never make any money uh, in finance, I'm sure. But for uh, those people who understood what it meant, uh, you know, the key actors, a gigantic reassurance to corporate America, a gigantic explosion upward of the stock market that paralleled the easing up in the bond market. What does that mean? If you are a owner of stocks, you're going to see your wealth explode. And what we call the market capitalization of the stock market just exploded out of sight. As you saw, the stock market goes up in a pretty much a parallel way, vertically, practically, to the way it went down. And in a sh- very short space of time, what we have is that $7.1 trillion of wealth is recreated in the period between the 18th of March and the 4th of June. That's basically May little more than a month and a half. That's a nice rate of return, of course, not in the real world, but in the stock market, which is all these people care about. And what it meant was, oh, who would you think might have done well on this? Well, in the first place, we know that maybe 10% of people actually own stocks outright. 90% don't. So those are the people who did not benefit. Who benefited most? Well, obviously, the biggest shareholders, the top managers, number one shock of all shocks, Jeff Bezos. A big gainer was the appalling Mark Zuckerberg, who made $25 billion in this period. Amazon makes loans at basically the same interest rate that the government has to pay. So both Jeff Bezos, now I think about $35 billion richer over those six weeks, At Amazon, now with the best situation of its loans, is back in even better odor. So essentially what we have is a who's who's list of, I guess it's really way too much editorial license to say capitalist criminals most lauded by the mainstream media and the financial press, but that's what's happened. Uh, Incalculable amounts of money in a very short time handed over to the uh, richest people around. But again, what's uh, lurking very little beneath the surface is that this money went to these people with no conditions. There was no need for and no reason for under these horrific conditions for more employment to take place or more investment to take place or, God forbid, any kind of social programs to be paid for, none at all. The Fed is guaranteeing the wealth and growing wealth of this tiny part of the population, while most of the rest of the population is as vulnerable as it's ever been, because the economy itself is as weak as it has ever been. 
And that's really, you know, the other punchline is that this is taking place at a time when the economy is incredibly weak, as you've laid out elsewhere, Robert Brenner. And I just want to let the listeners know that if you want to read this in detail with all the numbers, you can go to newleftreview.org and look at the current issue. That's issue number 123. And Robert Brenner has a new article called Escalating Plunder. And that's what we're talking about. And of course, what you have described is literally, truly extraordinary. So the financial sector, broadly speaking, the lenders uh, were refusing to lend because it was too risky. But in other words, the high risk made lending unprofitable. But now the Fed steps in, as you've just laid out, and says to the lenders, the greatest financial institutions, including commercial banks, hedge funds, mutual funds, investment banks, and all the rest, that they will remove this risk so that you can lend profitably. Isn't that kind of the most extreme uh, and obvious case of what the economists call moral hazard? Isn't it the Fed sponsoring, you know, a huge ripoff highway robbery? Yes, that is highway robbery. But as we know from the last financial crisis, even people who technically were breaking the law were never uh, arrested. And in this case, everything has been done to make sure that this highway robbery is perfectly legal out in the open, even if certain elements of it are hidden from view because of the suspension of the acts to allow you know, the normal oversight. So that's the first point. Yes, moral hazard on stilts. (laughs) Secondly, this moral hazard has a certain basis that is impossible to conceive of without the Fed. Only a central bank can, so to speak, print the money, or in this case, take on the almost, uh, you know, unlimited financial assets, add those to its balance sheet, buy up bonds uh, almost without limit, so that it can credibly say to the bond market, we're guaranteeing the bond market. I mean, if you think about that, it's moral hazard for a whole, the whole non-financial corporate sector, and by the same token, the lenders to it, which is the financial sector, a gigantic guarantee It's almost inconceivable. Only could be done by a central bank and done, as we're saying, by way of the explicit countering of risk. Now, I think you learn in Econ 1, probably don't learn in Econ 1, but you learn it commonsensically that you make money under capitalism or supposedly you could only make money under capitalism if you're prepared to take a risk. And that little problem has now been resolved by the Fed. You don't really have to take a risk. And you're saying that to the whole of the financial sector. Now, I just want to quote, usually doesn't make much sense to do this kind of thing, because who's really a big authority? But I think in this case, what this guy named Scott Menard, who is the chairman of investments for Guggenheim Investment, is saying makes a great deal of sense. And we'll see if what he says actually pans out. But it's not so different from what many of what I would consider the most acute analysts are saying these days. And what he's saying is, it's not just moral hazard. It's not just that the bond market has been 
so to speak, backed up or reassured. What he's saying is that by doing this, the Fed is going a long way toward actually moralizing the whole of the bond market, meaning that he is saying that the corporations are now going to have the expectation, and he's saying by implication, the right to expect that the Fed is going to back them up. Here, here, here's the quote. The support on offer to corporate America during the period of economic shutdown risks the creation of a new moral obligation for the U.S. government to keep markets functioning and help companies access credit. Corporate borrowers, therefore, are most likely on the way to becoming something like the government-sponsored enterprises, namely Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, who lend, for example, people who want to buy houses. That was essentially those institutions were backed up by the government and said to be effectively as riskless as a treasury, essentially. What this guy Minard is saying is that the difference between the GSEs last time and the bond market this time is that in this cycle, it is not a specific institution that is being guaranteed, but rather the investment-grade bond market as a whole. And listen to the wording. The investment-grade bond market as a whole is being rendered too big to fail. So, I mean, I think that's a you know very powerful statement, and I think it's something to conjure with about the politicization of the markets in this economy. I want to add one more thing to kind of round out the picture so people will kind of see the background to this. And that is that what the Fed is doing here is essentially extending the bond market bubble that had already been in progress before the meltdown. What does that mean? Well, what we know happened after the last financial crisis is there was far from there being any V-shaped recovery even to get the financial markets going, the Fed had to come in and do something called quantitative easing, the weirdest term ever. What it simply means is that the Fed would buy up risky assets or assets on their way to losing their value to prevent precisely that and to reassure the markets. In the process, they would assure it continues to be easy to lend and borrow. In addition, as we know, not just quantitative easing, which was in a sense a new big deal, the Fed actually decided that it would continue to keep interest rates down. So all of this meant a more or less permanent support for borrowers who then could guess what? Use that money for the asset markets as well as the corporations. It meant that to the extent that there is any threat to the bond market, any threat that interest rates would rise, the Fed is going to reverse itself. The most spectacular instance of this was very recently, 
2018-2019 when the Fed made this big dramatic move to say, okay, it's, uh, time's up. We're going to stop with this nonsense. We're going to get real and we're going to raise interest rates a little bit to end bubblenomic and maybe get the economy code back to normal. What happened? Immediately, the asset markets plunged. The Fed had to come back in as if there was a depression in real investment, but what was in danger was a depression in financial asset investment and bail out the market. So the markets then knew that the Fed was there to back them up. Why I'm emphasizing this is what now has happened is just the logical extension of what what already had been happening. And so what had already been happening is not just easy borrowing, driving up asset markets, particularly, as we know, the stock market, which becomes a direct way to make a fortune, but also to drive a bubble in the bond market, a continual downward pressure on interest rates for corporate borrowers. And what that meant was that in addition to doing what they had already been doing, they had now had money to borrow to do it. What had they already been doing? They had already been using their income on an unprecedented scale. I, I, I don't have the figures right in front of me, probably should have, but huge proportion of their free money, the money that they had to invest, they invested in buying stocks back. They invested it in handing out dividends. They invested it in executive pay. and all the while continuing the failure to invest and employ the last 10 years have been the lowest period of investment and employment in basically since the the post-war period. So we had that syndrome. And because we had that syndrome, to conclude the point, where does corporate borrowing come back in? Well, corporations were borrowing on the biggest scale ever by far, Nothing like it remotely ever happened the last 10 years. And that money was used for what? It was used precisely for buybacks, for dividends, for executive pay, not for investment, not for employment. So the model for what we're seeing today by the Fed, by the great corporations, and by the greatest lenders is simply an extension of the syndrome that we had been seeing up till the crisis. So let me just tell the listeners, you heard it here, uh, and that's Bubblenomics. And of course, Robert Brenner has written a book on the boom and the bubble, and he's saying that they're essentially trying to start a new bubble. Well, we have in the in the last five or 10 minutes, let's see how much we can get through, Robert Brenner, because it seems like what you're saying is that the Fed, backed by the Treasury and the Congress, has done something analogous to what the federal government and Federal Reserve have done historically when they've launched their stimulus programs, in the most extreme case, with the New Deal attempts to restructure the economy. So that means historically the government has tried to intervene in order to get the corporations to employ more people, invest more money, and improve productivity. And the government has done this by enabling the corporations to make more profits when they do these things. But here, and this is quite different, it seems, that the Fed is simply handing the corporations the money, skipping that whole part, you know, about getting them to employ more people and to invest more and improve, you know, infrastructure and all those other things. So is that what's going on? 
Yes. <laughs> in short. And that's a good way to end. Hopefully I could just conclude in this last several moments that we have. Yes. What the terminology is stimulus. The terminology is to bail out, support the corporations. But what has that meant historically? What that has always meant is that the government in bad times steps in and says, look, we're going to do a stimulus. What does that mean? We're going to make it easier for the corporations to invest, to employ. How are we going to do this? Standardly, it's done through tax cuts so that if the corporations take on their side of the deal, that is to invest, to employ, they'll be able to make bigger profits than before. That's a stimulus. When that's done on a much more structured way, you get the new deal. We call it restructuring. But either way, what the government is doing is saying to the corporation, we understand this is capitalism. Of course, they understand it's capitalism. So we're going to, as we do under capitalism, to get anything to happen, we're going to make it more profitable. That's the way it worked. And even though, of course, anything good that happened then had to come first through corporate profit making, that was what the deal was. And in a sense, working class organizations like trade unions or political parties who weren't about overthrowing the system or accepting the capitalist system understood this is part of the deal. We let the corporations or we get the government to let the corporations do better, make higher profits, and they will, as part of the deal, they will make those profits by investing more, employing more. And they had to because there's no other route available. But as you said, Susie, this is not what is going on now. What is going on now is pretty much that that middle step of getting things for the state or getting things for the people by means of increasing the profitability of the corporations, that middle step of investment and employment is being skipped. Instead, what you're having is stimulus bailout without conditions. And what we've just seen is it's no accident that when the Democrats and Republicans ensure the, quote, stimulus, the bailout, at this point, they are being very explicit to say, look, you don't have to do things that you normally have to do when you there's a stimulus. You don't have to invest. You don't have to employ. Moreover, you can take the money and you can use it for stock buybacks, for dividends, for executive salaries. So you have now this absolutely weird phenomenon of government intervention to support the economy, which is going through the corporations unburdened by the need to invest or employ. We know finally that the way this is happening is through the intervention in the asset markets, because this is where rich people, corporations, even the corporations we just saw, are making their money. They're not investing. They haven't been investing for ages. They're not employing. They have not been employing. What they're doing, they're getting rich through operation within the asset markets and, of course, 
This is what the Fed has ensured for them, upward and onward asset prices, making sure that asset prices are not going to fall or collapse. And so you, in other words, have stimulus. You have, quote, restructuring. I can even use that term because sometimes what the corporations do with loans is to simply sell all their assets. They liquidate. They do mergers. They do acquisitions. So all of this is now carried out without, you know, as our grandparents used to think, without the old-fashioned way of production and investment. Always, capitalist profits had to be front and center. But now, capitalist profits can be front and center without investment, without employment, and with straight predation even on their own corporations. You've said that word, and we're pretty much out of time, but I'm hoping that maybe you can just end it with this because you use the word predation, and that's, you know, the title of your article is Escalating Plunder. But maybe you could just give us a very quick kind of overview, I guess, of how we got into this absurd position. How did we get here? Can you kind of summarize it very quickly? You have two things going on. You have a catastrophically bad economy. At the same time, you have a state that is intervening, but with no intention of actually making economic policy affect the behavior of the corporations, financial or non-financial, meaning that the actual operation of the economy, capital accumulation, if you will, at best, is being untouched by a government policymakers and left totally in the hands of the corporations. So you have, on the one hand, the terrible conditions. On the other hand, political intervention in the financial markets to get what I would call politically upward redistribution of wealth, essentially by political action. In this two-sided aspect of the current situation, this, I would say, is the instantiation and culmination of what we've had since the 70s and 80s. And I'll say it very quickly, the world economy has gone systematically ever worse since the 1970s, decade by decade. In every aspect, it's gotten worse and worse as a whole, key point. Even though you've had, you know, like East Asia, especially China, done well in in the recent period, they have not been able to keep that up. Ultimately, they've joined the general trend toward decline, long-term decline. That's the overriding situation. The reason that that long-term decline is taking place is because you have a long-term slowdown in manufacturing, long-term overcapacity manufacturing, making disincentive to invest and disincentive to expand. Now, the political side, how do you intervene to affect this? One, globalization. Capital's got to be free. Multinationals have to be free to invest wherever they can, use the cheapest conditions with most advanced techniques to get the best return. The other element is very American-centered political intervention by the state, political parties, in collaboration with the corporations to shift income upward to the rich, to the corporations, to the politicians. How? By predation. Tax cuts, financial sector, manipulating that financial sector. Those are the two basic ways 
And that's where I'll stop. Well, Robert Brenner, thank you so much for all of that. And just to let the listeners know, because we don't have very much time left, that if you want to get a fuller analysis of Robert Brenner's thinking on these long-term trends, you can listen to two previous interviews that we have done on Jacobin Radio, one on March 24th of this year and the other on February 12th. And you can read it in a more detailed way in the current New Left Review. It's an article called Escalating Plunder, the professor of history at UCLA and author of many books, including most relevantly, I guess now, is The Economics of Global Turbulence and The Boom and the Bubble. Robert Brenner, thanks so much for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks very much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.